The Washington Post has been on quite a roll lately. Between the sanctioned doxing of libs of TikTok by Taylor Lorenz to their completely fabricated attack tying Glenn Beck to the January 6th riot, it seems like they're trying to outpace Netflix in tanking their own credibility. Case in point, Saturday's idiotic correspondence dinner that was chock full of annoying leftists ignoring the very COVID protocols that they seem to hold so dear to their souls. Here's Washington Post reporter Jada Wan and her thoughts on the environment. Here it is. This room is like a horror film. No exits, literally getting trapped between tables. Fear of breathing near people, but people are everywhere. Creeping sense that you're the only one who knows this is insane. Horror! Insanity! A crowded environment. Yes, Jada. Oh my gosh, it does sound terrifying. And since everyone's life was at risk at the event, surely you were decked out in your N95 and plastic face shield, right? Right? I mean, come on, please be, no, shockingly no. Maskless on the red carpet, sucking in everyone's infected droplets. How could this have happened? Well, it happened because the Washington Post and its reporters do not care about the reality or the truth anymore, I suppose. They are going to shell out fear to everybody else and all the outrage they can to you so they can learn, you know, earn your subscription fees and clicks while enjoying these sorts of lives that you and I aren't allowed to have until very, very recently. I would say we should start a Mask for Jada funding campaign, but judging from all the quintillions of dollars we wasted trying to achieve self-awareness for Taylor Lorenz, I fear it would just be a lost cause. Stu does America. There's elections going on. Yes, we are back at that time of day and that time of the year. BlazeTV.com slash Stu is a place to go. Get your subscription to Blaze TV. Use promo code Stu to get 10 bucks off. Crypto expert Laura Shin breaks down the world of Ethereum for us today. And an interview I don't think you're going to want to miss. Biden's record inflation continues to affect my food choices, and I am not pleased. Stay away from my food. But we start by doing Primary 22 Ohio. You know, it's a weird sort of environment. We were talking about the White House Correspondents' Dinner just a moment ago, and we did get a little joking about all of your pain. You know, when you're in a lot of pain, the White House Correspondents' Dinner is there to laugh at it. And here is Joe Biden, and uh, here he is laughing at uh, one of the, you know, I don't, Trevor Noah trying, uh, yeah, still to this day, keeps trying. And you know, I guess there's something to say about, you know, never give up, but sometimes you should. Uh, here is uh, Trevor now. You know, I think ever since you've come into office, things are really looking up. You know, gas is up, rent is up, food is up, everything. No, it really has been a tough first year for you, Mr. President. Uh, it sure has. It sucked. <laughs> oh, man, the first year sucked. It's actually yeah, a funny line. It's nice to see at least somebody take a shot at the president when he's, you know, uh, sitting there and, and just joyously laughing along. And it wasn't just laughing along. He also was making the jokes himself. And a special thanks to the 42 percent of you actually applauded. <laughs> Get it? I'm really excited to be here tonight with the only group of Americans with a lower approval rating than I have. You can actually hear that noise. Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, Joe, you're, you're hilarious. And the funny thing is that no one cared about any of this. The only thing people cared about was that Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson made an appearance. Apparently their first appearance out as a couple. Does anyone understand the Pete Davidson thing? I mean, 
I'm not attracted to men much, much. But I, I can see why women would like certain guys. You just look at him, you're like, that guy's, I mean, he's a hunk. I got it. What's the thing with Pete Davidson? I don't get it. I really just don't understand it. He seems to be completely mental. He seems to, he's just a wiry, skinny dude. And I honestly don't think he's all that funny. What's the, what's the thing here? Is there, is there something I don't know about? Is there a thing about him that I don't know about? That's, I mean, it's the only thing I can think of is that there's a rumor about him in some way that apparently might be true. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, it's a very strange thing. It has nothing to do with the Ohio elections. I don't know why. <laughs> why are we talking about this. Let's talk about the Ohio elections. Why are we talking about the Ohio elections? It's kind of the first one in a series as we go through these primaries and kind of sort out what the world is coming to and what this election is going to look like. And the primaries, you know, we'll hit on the big ones. We'll hit on the uh, on the on the on the toughest contests, the one to the ones that are really like generating a lot of interest and probably the biggest one, probably the craziest sort of, you know, throw your hands up in the air. And I don't know, day to day, who the hell knows what's going on is the Ohio Republican Senate primary. Now, I want to start with what what we're losing here, which is Rob Portman. Senator Rob Portman has decided to retire, and we we will miss him very, very much. Now, there's some things you could say about Rob Portman that you might like. I mean, he is kind of a throwback to that old-school uh, politician, and that might be your number one reason for being happy he's gone. But he did at least bring, a, a, I don't know, maybe an air of professionalism uh, to the job. He, you know, worked in, I think, the Bush administration, and he's got a long history. I don't think he's been a particularly... Uh, effective senator from Ohio. And as the state has moved more to the right, as it has over the past couple of cycles, it seemed more and more out of place having Rob Portman as the senator. And he's stepping down. But if you don't know Rob Portman, because he's very boring, like you never hear anything about Rob Portman. He's just there. And, you know, he's done some things that you like and a lot of things maybe you didn't like, but you never really hear about him. Here is his conservative review Liberty score. Um, it's an F. Thirty six percent from Rob Portman. And you might say, well, what's this? You know, you might not be familiar with the conservative review uh, Liberty scores uh, as 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 intimately as we are here, of course, at The Blaze, partnering with a conservative review. It's part of our company. They've been around for before we were you know, merged into, into one, I suppose. Uh, but uh, these are the bottom three Republicans in the Senate. And here's where Rob Portman places. He's third worst with his 36% score. The only two that are worse than him are Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. And I don't think people would normally put Portman there. And on some economic things, he's not that bad. I mean, he's kind of good. He, you know, some of the things he looks back and you say, okay, he was pretty good on the budget at times. But generally speaking, has not lived up to uh, conservatives' expectations, especially as the state has moved more and more to the right. So we get a big primary here with uh, seemingly like 100 different candidates and tons, tons of money being spent to get this seat. And basically, we've narrowed it down to a five-way race. This election happens tomorrow. So we're going to know really soon who wins here. And it's important that the Republicans don't blow this seat. Now, on the Democratic side, it's going to be most likely Tim Ryan. If you remember him, you don't. Okay, nobody else does either. But he ran as a presidential candidate in 2020. I know you don't remember him at all, but he was a congressman. And he was portrayed as sort of 
how Biden was portrayed during the primary, sort of a moderate candidate. Now, as we know, Joe Biden is not a moderate in any shape or form. Tim Ryan is trying to be that sort of blue dog Democrat, the guy who can come out and say every once in a while, you know what? We're only going to abort kids to eight months and 29 days. I'm taking the moderate stance. That's the kind of guy he is. And he's going to try to sell himself that way to um, Ohio voters and and attempt to fool them. Because obviously, if if people know who he is, uh, he's not going to win in Ohio. There is, of course, the chance that the Republicans nominate a bad candidate, someone who falls apart during the election. So tomorrow is crucial if you care about Republicans taking the Senate back. We've given you an outline already as to what the Senate looks like this year. And basically, to boil it all down, there are five toss-up races that the Republicans need to win two or three of to get themselves to 51 seats. It's not going to be easy, though they should be favored to do it. This is a Republican year. You have a very unpopular president, as even the president just noted to you in his speech last night. The guy's not very well liked. The party's not very well liked. Everything's going wrong all at the same time. Usually uh, a midterm election goes against the party with the sitting president anyway. So this is bad all around for the Democrats. This sh- they should totally lose. So can the Republicans blow it? That's what we'll talk about here. Now, the, the race started really with Josh Mandel as the guy. I mean, he was a guy who ran in 2012 as sort of a rising star, lost in a relatively close election to Sherrod Brown in 2012, Uh, ran again in 2018. It looked like it was going to be sort of a rematch. He then dropped out of the race uh, because of some family issues uh, and now is back here in the 2022 Senate race. Um, he was sort of the leader at the beginning. He's got, uh, you know, endorsements from places like the, you know, the Club for Growth and Senator Ted Cruz. So you can kind of see the profile there as a guy who uh, runs on a pretty conservative ticket. Now, he started more as a moderate and has slowly moved toward the right as the party has moved toward the right. If you think of Joe Biden, that's kind of the, his profile in the Democratic Party. When the Democratic Party in the 90s is moderate, Joe Biden's leading the way on moderates. When it becomes AOC today, that's kind of where he's been. He's been to basically the middle of the party all the time. Mandela has sort of tacked that same uh, sort of vibe over the past few years. Some people complain that it looks like he's just being an opportunist. He's just moving in that direction, whichever direction uh, he goes in. He is, uh, you know, he's got some military history. I mean, really, at one point was a big rising candidate in the GOP. He's struggled, though, in this race to maintain the, the, those early expectations. Uh, Iowa GOP chair Jane Timken, she was another uh, sort of early challenger to Mandel. Um, Trump It looked like Trump was going to back her at one point. Uh, It seemed that they had pretty uh, friendly uh, relationship. It didn't seem like he was in love with Mandel. And they kind of went back and forth behind the scenes. The rumor was, at least the reporting was, that Trump was on the verge of reporting her, uh, of of endorsing her. But then some um, activists uh, within the party, allegedly linked to Mandel's campaign, went to Trump and said, hey, I don't know if you know who this person is. She's just another establishment stooge. You're not going to like her at all. And uh, highlighted some of her comments uh, when she was defending someone who 
um, departed from the Trump orthodoxy, basically. Uh, and then Trump did not endorse, and she's you know sort of fallen off uh, ever since. Then you have uh, Mike Gibbons. Now Gibbons is a sort of a political outsider. Um, he's a he's the Rand Paul pick in this race. So you have a Cruz pick. You have a Rand Paul pick. You have a former GOP chair. Uh, the Rand Paul pick. He was an investment banker, and he's dumped money into this race. About seventeen million dollars has been dumped into this race by Gibbons. Um, he is again another guy who's made a run at the top of the polls, and it depends on you know which poll you look at how well he's doing. There was this really weird moment that happened recently, and if you're not following Ohio, uh, this Ohio race really closely, you, you may have missed this, but I want to highlight, to just show you how bizarre this race has been. There was an interaction between Gibbons and uh, Josh Mandel at one of the debates where they basically, it looked like they almost got in a fight. I mean, it really looked like they were just going to start punching each other at one point. You wouldn't want to be Gibbons, I don't think, on that side. Gibbons is a little bit older. I don't think you want to be Gibbons on that side of the debate. But this is what it looked like. Watch. I personally didn't buy the stock. You uh, made millions off it, sir. I don't think I made millions off of anything. I'd love to have made millions off of Chinese Petra. Uh, first of all, Shanghai Shenda Chinese Petra. Buying a second. Right, you may not understand this because you've I never been in the private. No, you don't. I do. You've never been in the I private sector it. in your entire life. All right, I've worked, sir. Josh, squat, Josh. Two chores in Iraq. Don't, don't tell me I haven't worked. Really. Don't tell me I haven't worked. You, you don't know squat. Yes, yes. It's okay, right? It's, you don't know squat. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Back off, buddy. You're going to You back off. Oh, come on, come on. Never. That'll happen. Sit down. Never. Watch. Watch. We'll square it away with the the wrong dude. No, no, you're dealing with the wrong guy. You watch what happened. You watch what happened. Wow. (laughs) Now, it is pretty, pretty bad uh, accusation to say someone who was in Iraq didn't work. Uh, But uh, it's a bizarre sort of back and forth. It hasn't helped either candidate. It seems like people kind of looked at that and said, I don't think I want either of these guys. So they've both sort of uh, faded in the race. Um, Then you have uh, Matt Dolan. Now, Matt Dolan is uh, uh, he's a co-owner of the Cleveland Guardians which you may notice, as, uh, know, of course, is a roller derby team in uh, Cleveland, but also apparently owned the Cleveland Indians. Uh, very rich family. He's dumped a bunch of money into this race as well, more than $10 million of his own money. Uh, he has been criticized by the other p- candidates in the race and saying, you're running for Senate like right now after you just changed the name of your stupid team to Guardians, really? Now, he has said, I don't even I didn't even I don't even like that change. I wanted to keep it the Indians. But he uh, uh, that's you know, is that going to hold? Who knows? Um, The other part about this is he's been the one candidate of the group who has basically been who has separated himself from Trump in in a very small way, which was to say that he did not think the election was stolen. Now, this is a very obviously important um, distinction for the president, former president himself, who does not want Dolan at all. And this is the guy he does not want to uh, does not want to win this race in any way, shape or form. And it's interesting. So you'd see you'd see this five person race and say, OK, he's the anti-Trump candidate. Uh, in theory, though he does not describe himself uh, that way. And then you have J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance might be the highest profile of the candidates. He is a, is a very famous author, uh, wrote the book Hillbilly Elegy, um, uh, which was sort of a book about, you know, the the downfall of that region. I mean, it, it was also sort of a memoir, but, you know, downfall of that region where the culture and everything got backwards and 
there's those areas that have just sort of died in America, and he hit a really strong vibe with that. In the book itself, it sort of blames more cultural reasons, not as much talking about government solutions to, to these uh, problems, but as he's running as a candidate, he's kind of embraced that side more. If you go back to 2016, and this has been a big part of the debate in the campaign, he was, uh, and he described himself at one point as anti-Trump or never Trump. Uh, he made a lot of comments that were not favorable to Trump and sort of came along like, honestly, a lot of Republicans did. Uh, this is not a, exactly a, uh, a super outlier position, but it has stoked the can- other candidates' campaigns to say, hey, you're going to vote for this guy? Uh, he was bashing Trump at one point. Well, Trump apparently knew all about that and decided to endorse J.D. Vance anyway. So Vance, who was kind of bubbling around toward the middle of the pack, maybe towards the middle bottom of the pack, has been able to rise up more toward the top. He's got a bunch of money from Peter Thiel, who gave about $10 million, again, the money that is flowing in this race, uh, $10 million to his campaign, and who knows how much more. That was like the initial donation. But Thiel is a big supporter of J.D. Vance, and Vance really went from kind of was... I mean, he's a guy who was a National Review sort of conservative uh, years ago and now is more in that vein of Trump. But he's a good communicator and, and a fighter, and people really do seem to like that. So where do we stand here as we go uh, to the race tomorrow? This is, I'm going to give you the most recent Trafalgar poll. This is really the only one that reflects the Trump endorsement. So I can give you polls from earlier where these names are different, but this is the most recent we have, and Trafalgar's had a pretty good record here of, of late. This is J.D. Vance leading at 26.2%, Matt Dolan in second at 22%, Josh Mandel at 21%, Mike Gibbons 13%, and Jane Timken at about 6%. There's a couple of other candidates around 2% and about 9%. Undecided. So as you see, if those undecided voters show up and decide to pick one of these candidates, this could go any way, really, uh, that you that you can imagine it. Uh, this is, in, you know, especially for those top three, really could go any way. The interesting part about this is four of the five candidates are seen as pro-Trump. Uh, and the only exception of that is Dolan. If everyone in the party who does wants to go a different direction and, and liked the Rob Portman uh, vibe of uh, as a senator, Dolan has a chance here if these polls are right. I mean, he's right within striking distance, and he's the only one who kind of stands out. You, you look at uh, J.D. Vance and Seth Mandel, excuse me, Josh Mandel, who look somewhat similar as profiles of candidates, um, at least as, as far as their messaging goes, where Dolan's the one that kind of looks a little bit different. So is it possible that you have four uh, candidates that have similar profiles picking apart each other, and then Dolan is the one that wins. Whoever wins here, you don't need a majority. There's no runoff. So really, that's the way that this can go. All these candidates should be able to beat Tim Ryan. I should point that out. Uh, so should a shoe. Just like a random shoe you find on the side of the road should be able to beat Tim Ryan. But the Democrats are going to pour money into that race because they need to pick off one of these races that looks like it might lean Republican or is a toss up or they're going to lose the Senate. And with that, of course, lose uh, their Supreme Court picks and many other important things. Um, so how, how do the betting markets look at this right now? Who's going to win? People, the betting markets really think it's going to be J.D. Vance. They say 71 percent. Uh, and this is on predictit.org. If you'd like to make some money on it, if you have different opinions, you could go there and check it out. Uh, J.D. Vance at 71% chance to win. Matt Dolan, 20% chance to win. Josh Mandel at 14%. If you kind of look at who's going to finish in second, people think it's Matt Dolan at 47%. Josh Mandel, 36%. And then J.D. Vance, uh, if he were to lose, at 23%. Look, the truth is, 
this, for better or for worse, whatever you think about the statement I'm about to make, you might love the statement, you might hate the statement, but this is Donald Trump's party. This is the party of Donald Trump. It's Trump's party. Uh, everyone in the party tries to be Trump all the time, mainly unsuccessfully. Um, everyone tries to, every single candidate in this race is trying to curry his favor at some level. Even the anti-Trump guy in the race is saying he's not anti-Trump. That's, this is just Donald Trump's domain. And if you like that, you, you may think that's absolutely fantastic. You may think that's absolutely horrible, but the GOP is essentially a wholly owned subsidiary of, of Trump uh, Incorporated. And, you know, look, that is what has happened, and it is the reality here. It, you might, might like it, you might not like it, but you should recognize that this is the truth. It's just like the Democratic primary, uh, or excuse me, the Republican primary for president. It's like, Everyone talks about it a lot, but it all starts with a conversation of, well, if Trump decides to win, he's obviously the candidate. But if he doesn't, there's an incredible race between X, Y, and Z. Blah, 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 blah. It's just whatever Trump decides. That is really where we are. And you might like that. You might not like it. But it is the truth. And it's also the truth that some women apparently think Pete Davidson is hot. And, you know, whatever happens in Ohio, whatever, I mean, you know, I... I may or may not understand what happens in Ohio, but I will never understand the idea that Pete Davidson is hot. We're about to talk about cryptocurrency. You're here in just a minute. The, 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 the founding story of Ethereum and how that developed and all the craziness that went on behind the scenes. Uh, we've been talking about cryptocurrencies for a long time, both on this radio, uh, this show, on the radio show, on Glenn's TV show. We were very early on this, and Tika Tawari was a big part of that story. He came on a lot back in like 2016, and it was like, "Hey, you know, everyone's you know dismissing this Bitcoin thing. I know you've maybe heard of it, but you're really early here, and you should get in because it's going to go up." Well, it did go up. It went up to like 20,000, but then it fell down, and it was at three or four thousand, even in 2020. Now, the cryptocurrency markets have had a couple of rough days recently, but we're still talking about close to $40,000 Bitcoin now. And that's what he predicted back in 2000, gosh, that was 2017, 2018, when everyone was saying it was over. Uh, if you haven't bought Bitcoin, it's not too late. I think a lot of people think it's too late. You're still really early on this, especially when you look at globally. You're super duper early. You are very early on Bitcoin if you get in there now or whatever cryptocurrency you're looking into. Uh, sign up for Tika Tawari's Palm Beach letter right now at BigTReport.com. BigTReport.com. He can give you the down low on not only Bitcoin, but all the stuff, all the projects I don't even know about yet. He's, he's in this world every single day. Get their information. BigTReport.com. I'm so happy to welcome Laura Shin to the program. She's a crypto journalist, author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, which is available now. Make sure you grab a copy. It's great. Uh, also, she's the host of the Unchained podcast. Be sure to subscribe to that as well. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I, I was. I mean, I'm so glad you were able to take the time. It's such a great book. And, you know, really, like, I think the the... The history of basically Ethereum, you kind of go through, there's a little bit more to it than that, going through the beginnings of crypto and however, how we got there. But this is the story of Ethereum. If you don't, it, you know, people don't go into crypto that much. This is the second biggest cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. Um, but it really did have a, a, a different 
vision and a different start. The, uh, tell us about the founder, Vitalik Buterin, and, and where he came from and how he came up with this, this vision. So Vitalik Buterin is a Russian-born Canadian well, now I guess you would call him, uh, you know, uh, a developer, uh, a sort of <laughs> um, cryptocurrency creator. Uh, but back in 2013, he basically was actually a Bitcoin journalist. And he was traveling the world, going to these different communities around the globe that are into Bitcoin. And he was noticing that they were innovating on Bitcoin in a way where they were just adding new features. So, um, you know, Bitcoin, famously, the white paper says that it's a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And so people would just kind of like create a new blockchain with an additional feature or, you know, a few features. And he thought, why can't it be more like an app store where anyone, any developer can think of a decentralized application? So, uh, you know, famously, Bitcoin is decentralized, meaning there's no company or CEO or any government or any single entity that is responsible for it. But it's just a group of loosely um, organized people around the globe that that uh, run the software and make sure that the network is running. And he thought, why can't developers do similar things with other kinds of applications, just the way that, for instance, the Apple App Store has photo apps and cooking apps and financial apps and productivity apps. And so what he did was he developed Ethereum so that it was centered around a single programming language. And through that language, then any developer could have an idea for a decentralized application on Ethereum and upload it just the way that we do to our app stores. And so, yeah, he um, basically sent out the white paper for this idea on the day that Bitcoin crossed $1,000 for the first time. Mm. So pretty much right away, people understood there there's potential here for us to make money and yeah, that was that was the beginning. Yeah, and some people might have seen Vitalik, you know, in in media reports, maybe seen him online. He's, he's certainly a prominent figure there. I, I, it's it's hard to really imagine what was he like nineteen years old when this <laughs> happened. I mean, this is it's just fascinating to see what this has grown into from where it began. Yeah, he was nineteen at that time, and actually, what they decided to do was kind of publicly present Ethereum for the first time at a conference known as the North American Bitcoin Conference in Miami. And uh, I think, like within a couple days after that, he finally turned twenty. <laughs> but the fact that he was so young at the time that he started Ethereum really caused a lot of the troubles early on in Ethereum because he did not really have the personal skills in order to manage kind of like the different personalities and and other things that were going on. Yeah, th- this is one of the things I really took. Uh, it was interesting to see the book, the way you wrote it in that, it, you know, it, it's, of course, a story about cryptocurrency, but it really, you did a great job humanizing these people. Like, I, I, in a way, I, I feel like uh, as an outside observer of, of, a, of a blockchain project, I'm thinking of just quants. Like, these are people who are <laughs> just, all they talk about is programming language, and they, they're almost robots bots to me in, 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 the, in, the, in the story I've created in my mind. I mean, it's interesting to see these people interact with each other. There's a personality conflicts. There's the difficulty. There's the power struggles. All the things you'd see in a, in a band or something as it formed and rose to prominence, you see in the story. 
Yeah, yeah. I honestly feel like pretty much the whole book, frankly, just ends up being all these different conflicts. And part of it, frankly, is because I do think Vitalik had that difficulty just asserting himself. And multiple people talked to me about how he was so conflict averse and he was so young that older people and especially people who might have been more self-motivated realized that because he could not say no, If they just hung out with him, got in his ear, he would not be able to say, you know, I don't agree with you. And so eventually they would get their way. And a lot of people basically try to do that. And this is why you will see um, there are multiple instances in the book where in a group discussion, Vitalik will come in and he'll have these ideas. And then that's not what gets decided. Other people kind of have more influence and they sort of, um, yeah, determine what those decisions will end up being. I think everybody in their business life has had a couple of these people where you know, they are manipulating the situation and they're trying to put influence on people. It seemed like almost everybody around Vitalik had uh, these sort of instincts. And as I was thinking about it, you know, I got into, you know, Ethereum pretty, I think, relatively early on, mainly out of luck because of of a friend's advice. Uh, but I think, honestly, if I had known what was going on behind the scenes, I wouldn't I wouldn't have wanted to have been involved with it. I mean, it, it felt it reading your book. It feels these are very smart people, but it was really out of control there for a while. It was. I mean, there were so many travails. You know, when I went to I mean, when I went to write the book, I had been covering crypto for, I think, like almost four years. And even I did not know half of the stuff, even even like a quarter of the stuff that I uncovered for the book. So, you know, I mean, there were just, um, yeah, lots of power struggles around things like titles or how much they should pay themselves or about who should be the leader of the foundation or how the foundation should be run or even before they establish the foundation, whether or not they should establish a corporate entity or a nonprofit. I mean, there it's just over and over and over and over again, these these conflicts just um, go on. And even this thing about how much they should be paid, I think they settled it, you know, in the spring of one year. And then in the summer of the following year, it came up again and caused a big stir on Reddit. So even today, I get people tweeting at me about these kinds of things. So yes, these conflicts basically have kind of uh, stuck with Ethereum. And there, a lot of them are still going. I mean, you get the sense, you could tell, you've talked You talked to so many of these people seemingly multiple times. Uh, I can't even imagine how much work you put into this thing. But you can tell yeah. they're still fighting these battles multiple years later to you. Uh, and you're just in the middle trying to sort it out. I mean, that could not have been easy to do. Oh, yeah. I interviewed more than 200 people. And, you know, when you have this kind of decentralized story, that's that's a challenge in itself. You know, as you probably know, at the beginning of the book, I have this list of characters and it's 50 people long. And this is after I cut it down. (laughs) So there were there were, you know, other people that I interviewed or that were involved that, yeah, I did not mention them. But uh, that did lead to a lot of work where when people say things and they contradict other people, then I would need to try to get corroborating evidence, something that was contemporaneous, or I would just go around to many of the other people and try to, you know, suss out like what is, um, you know, as best as I can tell, the most accurate version of what happened back then. But you're right. Years later, people people were still litigating certain points with me. Mm. It really is fascinating. Um, it, let me go to a couple of the, the big uh, points in the book. There, the Dow hack is sort of a somewhat, if you're in these circles, you, you probably have heard of it, but you really go through, I mean, bit by bit, exactly how this happens. And we don't need to go into all the technical details. But what I, what I thought was pretty interesting about this was 
there, and this I think happens in a lot of crypto companies, but it happens or crypto projects, but a lot of companies as well, where it's the, we start with this sort of utopian vision, and as that utopian vision develops and it gets furthered, there's this I, there's this pragmatic reality that gets in the way. And there's this giant hack happens with Ethereum relatively early on. And it's not actually Ethereum, it's a separate sort of project, but it, it, was a, it would have been a huge effect to, with Ethereum. And they had to decide, our utopian vision that this thing just runs on its own and we never touch it, is butting up against the reality that this project is going to lose a lot of reputation if we just allow all this money to get stolen. Can you kind of give us a walkthrough of this story and how it played out? Yes, so the DAO hack is the hack of something called the DAO, spelled D-A-O, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And in this particular case, it really was structured as a decentralized venture fund. And the way that I describe it in the book to understand the significance is that, so the DAO was created um, when Ethereum was maybe like nine months old or so. So it wasn't like the Ethereum of today where we have DeFi and NFTs and many other DAOs and all kinds of things happening on Ethereum. But the DAO really was like the only thing that people were interested in on Ethereum at that time. So the way I describe it in the book is it was as if you had the App Store and then this was the most popular application and the App Store barely had anything else. Hmm. So if the DAO became so popular, it actually garnered 15% of all ETH. Uh, meaning that 15% of all the youth in, existent, in existence went into crowdfunding for this DAO. And it was so popular that it actually became the highest crowdfunded project in history, mm-hmm. even when you include things you know like normal Kickstarters. Wow. So it was hugely important. And yes, it generated a, an existential crisis for Ethereum. Yeah. And, and so it, it was fascinating to watch without, I mean, there's, there's, you have so much great detail in the book and I, and I don't want to ruin it, but it, it was interesting in that they basically eventually decided to basically roll back uh, Ethereum to before the hack in a way. And there were all these questions as to whether they were essentially committing theft of the, on their own, um, they, were th- whether they were hacking. There was a, a white hat group uh, I- involved here trying to, we were the good guys, we're doing it the right way. And there were a lot of people who said, you know what, you can't step in. You can't stop this. You can't touch it. You have to let it go. That's the vision of Ethereum. This caused a huge controversy because you know, I saw some chat logs where people were saying, look, this is a problem with the DAO, not Ethereum. Ethereum worked as intended. And they were also saying things like, um, if you show that you're able to kind of uh, have this control of Ethereum, that a centralized entity can have control over Ethereum, then regulators are going to come in and mm-hmm. it's going to have consequences for blockchains. In the end, actually, what was surprising is that um, about a year or yeah, a, a year later, um, some regulators did come out. They didn't actually talk too much about, you know, whether or not kind of undoing that hack was a good idea. But what they did say was that since everybody got their money back, that they weren't going to pursue any action uh, for a different infraction. So that was just sort of fascinating that in the end, actually, because they did basically return people's money, 
uh, the, the SEC in this case decided not to pursue an enforcement action. Right, really is fascinating. And it's it's edge of your seat as they're trying to figure out what to do as you go through this. Um, there's also other stories that are just, you know, I, 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 th- I found it interesting to see all of the entrepreneurial spirit that was involved in this. Um, you tell the story of, of my Ether wallet in here. And I thought this was really fascinating about how people who aren't necessarily in the original project were able to kind of just build on it and and make it better. It really was, in, in a way, it, it hit that decentralized spirit, I think, in a way that was kind of encouraging and, and shows maybe a bright future for, for all of these projects. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, by the end, I to my mind, it's quite clear that Ethereum at that point is pretty decentralized. You have all these different people that are working on all different kinds of things. Uh, in the crypto world, you will often hear people say that, um, if you compare it to something like gold, gold is this commodity where it, um, you know, it, ha- it has an industry of centralized companies working around it, but there's no one central gold corporation that is controlling gold. And I would actually say the same for Ethereum. I do know some people say, oh, the Ethereum Foundation controls things, but I can tell you <laughs> right now, um, <laughs> because of many incidents that have happened that happened in the book, it's very clear Ethereum Foundation does not control. Uh, Ethereum, and that's how this evil twin of Ethereum that uh, is called Ethereum Classic ended up uh, being created because, yes, the Ethereum Foundation could not stop that. So um, I agree with you. Uh, You know, the friends who started my Ether wallet were just, frankly, some young uh, 20-somethings who were really into Ethereum and just had an idea of how to use it better. So they created something that then became the most widely used wallet for the initial coin offering craze. Hmm. It really is crazy. Um, all right, so, uh, and all this is in the book, and you have so many, so many, we can't go through all of it because there's just so much stuff. But uh, what's fascinating about it is most of the stuff we've talked about here, Ethereum's at like $10, right? You know, now it's 3000 uh, You know, there, it's, a, it's, you know, a massive, massive, massive world. And here you have Vitalik, who starts this when he's 19 years old. He's, you know, now rich beyond all imagination, but he doesn't live like a rock star. He's not that guy at all. Who is he and what is he, how does he want this story to end? Yeah, you know, Vitalik is in a way a somewhat difficult person to know because he's not a very talkative person. So, so much of our interviews would be me asking him a question and then him giving like a one word or one sentence answer and then me just pouncing on whatever he said to ask him another question on that. And, you know, a lot of it was like that. But, you know, what I came away with is that he's actually quite a pure and idealistic. And in many ways, especially early on in the book, he was a very naive individual. Um, You know, obviously, I do feel that my book ended up being a coming of age story for Vitalik, which I did not anticipate when I went to write the book. But you know, once I had the material, I realized that is what had transpired in those years. And I still feel that, you know, a lot of the reason that he kind of was able to be manipulated early on is because he's so pure that he cannot see when people have bad intent. He just can't even conceive of that. And it took him a while to even figure that out. And I think people had to frankly explain that kind of thing to him. So, you know, now he's definitely more mature. I think he has an awareness that people can be like that. But yeah, he definitely um, still, I think, is that kind of idealistic and pure person. But in that way, I actually also think he's quite evolved because he is definitely more selfless than other people that have been involved in the Ethereum project. And frankly, that's a pretty rare trait in the cryptocurrency world. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's very true. In almost every area of, of the world, I've found. Uh, Laura Shin, she's the author of The Crypt Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. This is like the authoritative story of, uh, of, of Ethereum. And if you're interested in this at all, I can't recommend it enough. She's also the host of the Unchained podcast. You should definitely check that out as well. Laura, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You're going to be shocked to hear that confidence in our economic leadership has fallen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, shocking. Um, slightly more than four in 10 adults now have almost no confidence in, in Biden and Democratic congressional leaders' economic competence. That number is 30 percent for Republican leaders. Twenty two percent said the same of Jerome Powell. Of course, no one knows who Jerome Powell is. Let's be honest about it. Again, they like Pete Davidson and uh, Kim Kardashian stories. They don't know who Jerome Powell is. Um, but 80 um, percent of Democrats approve of Biden on the economic front. Just eight percent of Republicans. Why would they feel that way? Well, here's uh, the latest of one million indicators. The stock market has had its worst month since covid. Now, you might think to yourself, hey, it's felt like they've had a lot of bad months from, from COVID. And that, that has actually been pretty much true. One, two, three, four, five. Well, five of the last eight months have been down. Three of the last four months, it has been down. And we really, you know, you had that really big drop at COVID, uh, at the COVID time, started to bounce back, and really has just, you know, kind of fallen down uh, in a, it's been a funk lately when it comes to not only the stock market, but really everything, cryptocurrencies and so many other things right now. The only thing that seems to always be going up are the prices of the goods you buy. <laughs> and that's, uh, we can thank Joe Biden for that one. Now, even McDonald's prices are going up. This is the most unacceptable story of the day. Never raise prices at McDonald's. I uh, need to get my, uh, you know, five to six trips per day in, and this is going to wipe me out financially. They've been uh, hiking their prices actually a couple times over the past, uh, I think it's 6% last year they hiked the prices. Now they've hiked them another 8%. So 8% up for your Big Mac, your French fries, your uh, Egg McMuffins and such. I mean, look, as Americans, we don't need more fast food. That's true. However, as Americans, we deserve all the fast food that we want. And it should all be supplied to us immediately at almost no cost. That's all we're asking for. Is that too much? All we're asking for is nonstop sustenance that's delicious, immediate, and almost free. Other than that, we don't need much of anything except all the other things that we need. Back in a second. You check out the show on Facebook. And if you go there and you make us a favorite uh, part of your uh, feed, you'll actually get the stuff that we do and see the show every day. If you want to make uh, comments there, you can as well. We'd always appreciate it. Studios America, of course, on Facebook. Thanks, too, for always being on top of the important news and adding in your quirky sense of humor. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Uh, this is the best stupid show on the Internet. Keep them coming. Stew. Uh, this is part of a story that we talked about yesterday, that there's new cereal coming out that is, instead of milk, orange juice based. Uh, back in 1992, I went to college with a girl totally allergic to dairy, so she ate her cereal with OJ. I don't know if this is a good idea, but I'm going to find out for you because I care about you.
because I care about you. I'll try this stuff. I don't care. Uh, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I don't care enough to Google Bishop Stewart, or I can't even remember what you said. This comes back to a guy who's actually in Congress, and I've never heard of him. He's been in Congress since I was in high school, and I've never heard of the guy. Never said his name in my entire life until this past Friday. And yet I said, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC, it's all we talk about. It's all we talk about. These guys poking away. God knows what they're doing. Who knows what weird laws they've passed and what favors they've garnered. And we don't even know who they are. That's just the way this system works. Uh, you can check out uh, YouTube as well. YouTube.com slash America. Let me give you the uh, final review here. Uh, Stew Plus, a classic. If you ever decide to do an overtime show, you've got your title. Actually, yes, and I've got a mug. Uh, check it out at uh, StewDoesMerch.com. Get a Stew Plus mug. If you use the code Stew10, you'll get 10% off. And Stew Plus, if you're on YouTube, click the bell because you'll get alerted. Yes, we will be going live probably tomorrow. Uh, to talk a little bit maybe more about the campaigns and everything that's developing, check it out on YouTube.com slash America. I blab too much, so I'm out of time. But I will see you tomorrow, and I won't run out of time then.